we've entered a new era for nuclear energy. The combination of energy security needs, financial pressures, and climate concerns are driving renewed interest in nuclear power plants around the world. Amid growing global demand, the U.S. has an opportunity to lead. In the second episode of Political Climate's Arsenal of Clean Energy series, we discuss how inventing, deploying, and exporting U.S. advanced nuclear technology can help to securely decarbonize energy systems and revitalize local economies at home and abroad. Political Climate is supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. The Arsenal of Clean Energy series is made possible by Third Way, a center-left think tank championing modern solutions to the most challenging problems in U.S. policy. You can learn more at thirdway.org. As the world contends with a global energy crisis, nuclear power can help countries securely transition to energy systems dominated by renewables. That's according to a new special report by the International Energy Agency. This represents a unique opportunity for the United States to reclaim its position as a global nuclear energy leader in the face of growing competition. 19 countries currently have nuclear reactors under construction, and that number is likely to increase amid recent spikes in oil, gas, and electricity prices, and amid mounting energy security concerns. American allies in Europe are eager to find clean and safe energy options as they migrate away from Russian supply chains in the wake of the war on Ukraine. At the same time, former coal communities in the U.S. and abroad are looking for new economic and job creation opportunities. The next generation of advanced nuclear technologies are changing the game. Small modular reactors, or SMRs, are lower cost and easier to site, making them more socially acceptable and financeable than their traditional large-scale counterparts. With funding from last year's bipartisan infrastructure law, the Department of Energy's new Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program is one example of how the U.S. is speeding up deployment of these advanced reactor designs. But without policy support and new public-private initiatives, like the demonstration program, nuclear power is projected to decline as part of the U.S. energy mix and largely be replaced by natural gas. This not only raises concerns for the climate, but, as we'll discuss, for national security and American global leadership. To discuss what's at stake in the global nuclear power race, I spoke to Alan Ahn, Senior Resident Fellow for Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, as well as Carol Berrigan, Executive Director of Federal Programs and Supplier Relations at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Here's that conversation, the second in our special Arsenal of Clean Energy series. So let's start this episode by going back in time to last fall at the COP26 UN Climate Summit, where Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry and Romanian President Klaus Johannes announced their intent to deploy small modular reactors in Romania. This would be in partnership with the U.S. firm NewScale Power. Flash forward to just last month, June 2022, we saw the U.S. government announce $14 million toward a front-end engineering and design, or FEED, study that would provide the basis for the deployment of small modular reactors in Romania. So this is a concrete example of how the U.S. is working together with another country to deploy advanced nuclear technology. For Romania's part, it's expressed interest in becoming an energy power in Europe, viewing this as part of its national security framework, especially in the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine, where countries are seeking to take greater control of their energy resources. So Alan, first to you, what is the significance of these recent developments? Yeah, thanks for that question. And this is certainly an area that Third Way has been uh, intimately involved in and working on, you know, for the last several months. You know, for the U.S., the significance is, you know, it moves the U.S. closer to the export of a domestic SMR technology. It'd be a major milestone for the U.S. advanced nuclear industry. You know, I think the ability to access international markets is huge, you know, especially for SMR technology. 
you really need to mass produce, manufacture at scale in order to fully unleash the economic potential of small reactors. And then, of course, there are the economic benefits, you know, building out domestic manufacturing and industry, creating jobs and so forth. Uh, ultimately, I believe this is a matter that goes you know, further than just economic gain. Uh, we are supporting the energy security of our allies abroad, reducing their dependence on Russian fossil fuels. And if this is a first step towards many more U.S. export projects, this goes a long way towards supporting robust international practices and standards in the uh, safe, secure and peaceful use of nuclear technology. You know, for Romania, I think many of the same things apply, you know, strengthening domestic energy security, climate goals, etc. One thing that comes to mind in particular is that this is a deal that establishes or could potentially establish Romania as a regional hub for SMR manufacturing. And to the extent that there are other countries in Central and Eastern Europe that are also interested in nuclear energy, this could be the foundation towards, you know, bigger and better things. Carol, what is your take on not only developments in Romania, but to Alan's point, the broader strategic relevance of Europe investing in this technology? So, Julia, I want to sort of start back a little bit on the Romania question first. I think that Romania has been a very interesting journey. We saw back in the 2020 timeframe, Romania recognized the significance of who they partner with matters as they moved away from a partnership with China towards and signed an MOU um, and eventual intergovernmental agreement with the United States to explore nuclear development, both to refurbish and add to their additional can-do fleet, but also investment in SMR deployment. And then sort of fast forward, I had the privilege of being in Glasgow when that was announced by uh, President Yohannes and Special Envoy Kerry, um, I had the chance to go to the signing ceremony between New Scale and Nuclear Electrica. And I tell you, this is a, a big step forward in terms of the prospects for SMR deployment in Romania and um, more broadly in Europe. I think what's particularly interesting is putting the context of SMR deployment in the COP context, which was very much focused on moving forward quickly on achieving climate goals and looking at how nuclear became part of that dialogue, not on the fringes, but a real part of that dialogue around moving forward on climate goals. I think you couple that with the energy security aspects, especially since the horrible events in Ukraine earlier this year. You look at Romania sharing a border with Ukraine. It's in their neighborhood. It's in their backyard. I had the the privilege to visit Bucharest just in May when uh, the site selection was announced for this project and the partnership to continue to move forward. And now you have the announcement of the feed study. Um, which is the next step. If you sort of think about it in terms of agreement to move forward together and explore nuclear selection of a site and now moving forward with front-end engineering and design, I think is a, is a very exciting step forward. The other uh, terrific announcement that took place in Bucharest was investment in a training center and simulator there in the E2 center in, in uh, Romania that will help train future um, nuclear technology folks in Bucharest and in Romania for this industry. So just it's a great progress along a roadmap towards deployment from an energy security standpoint, bringing SMRs into the discussion, I think is also very important both for Romania and others in the region who are looking at their energy security and meeting their climate goals. So nuclear basically allows you to do both. You can move forward on energy security, you can move forward on climate together. 
So you mentioned some of these recent developments. I'm curious to know about the timelines. How long did it take to get this Romania project kicked off? Again, we mentioned initial announcements last fall at the COP26 Climate Summit. How long will it take to see these types of projects deployed? So sort of how did it start and where are we going in terms of when will we start to see the real impact of these partnerships? This has been a several-year journey so far. This all started in the 2020 timeframe during the last administration and has continued forward in a stepwise fashion. I believe when the New Scale Nuclear Electrica Agreement was signed at COP, there was a goal looking towards 27-28 timeframe. I'm not sure what that is today, but that was the timeframe that was talked about then. But I think the important part is this is this decade. This is this decade where we can move forward with these technologies. And it's not just these technologies in Romania, but you have other countries looking at them as well in the region. Poland um, is looking at these technologies. Czech Republic is looking at these technologies and others. So there's, there's a lot of positive momentum in the, in the region. So to put a finer point on this, Alan, what does it mean for the U.S. to invent, build, and export nuclear technologies to its allies? By that, I mean, what kind of role would we expect government to play in supporting these efforts? What kind of role would private companies play? How does this look to start to make this a U.S. priority? Well, just to uh, provide some historical context, you know, the U.S. was a pioneer in nuclear power generation, was the originator of the world's first commercial nuclear plant. So at one time, the U.S., was the world's predominant supplier of civil nuclear technologies. You know, over the course of the last several decades, you have seen other suppliers emerge in the construction and operation of large conventional nuclear power plants, including, you know, France, Japan, South Korea has emerged as a recent player, Russia and China, you know, which I'll get back to a bit later. So the U.S. has really lost this market position it held years ago. You know, with advanced nuclear, whether SMRs like NuScale or non-light water reactor designs, uh, such as those being supported under the uh, Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, uh, ARDP at the Department of Energy, uh, these were technologies that were originally conceived in federally funded work done at the U.S. national laboratories in prior decades. You know, so again, the U.S. is, you know, the trailblazer in these innovative technologies, and they represent an opportunity for U.S. industry to recapture global market share in civil nuclear. You know, the U.S. private sector has had special access to resources at the national labs, to the data and accumulated knowledge over the years from government R&D programs through uh, initiatives like GAIN, uh, the gateway for accelerated innovation in nuclear. So uh, with these advanced nuclear technologies, U.S. industry is really at the forefront and has the edge over its international competitors, although you know, unsurprisingly, many other countries are also developing their own SMRs and advanced reactors. So uh, this really is no time to take the foot off the gas pedal. In addition to potentially building new scale units in Romania in the near future, you know, we're on track to seeing the first deployments and demonstrations of a number of different U.S. advanced nuclear designs. You know, Oklo is seeking to build its first Aurora uh, micro reactor within the next several years. Kairos Power is in progress towards building a scaled-down version of its planned uh, commercial unit in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which it plans to get up and running around the 2026 timeframe. And last but not least, we have the two main ARDP demonstrations, you know, both of which have target start dates in the 2027-2028 period. You know, there is growing interest in these technologies at the state level in the U.S., 
You've had a number of states that you know previously had uh, moratoria on nuclear construction. You know, such as West Virginia recently repealed those bans. You know, you have more and more state legislatures uh, that are now passing study bills on uh, assessing, evaluating the feasibility of siting SMRs and advanced reactors in their jurisdictions. You know, so the potential is there for these first handful of deployments to eventually serve as a foundation for a uh, much larger fleet of SMRs and advanced reactors in the U.S. Uh, This obviously would have huge benefits for building out the domestic nuclear supply chain and growing the needed nuclear workforce. You know, this in turn, you know, would then position the U.S. to export its uh, advanced nuclear technologies to international markets. And of course, you know, this would be strengthened by partnerships like what we're you know, currently seeing between the U.S. and Romania. The role of the government is massive in anything related to civil nuclear exports and, and not just supporting agreements like the one between New Scale and Nuclear Electrica. The primary competitors for international nuclear energy markets are state-owned enterprises. So often these nuclear deals are not purely commercial transactions. Often they are lubricated by government-to-government concessions and deals. And so not only will you see industry representatives present from our foreign competitors, you know, they'll often bring heads of state, government ministers to to meet with prospective clients and partners. So, you know, in this backdrop, uh, the federal government absolutely has critical roles to play. You know, it's already been central to laying the foundations for U.S. commercial advanced nuclear industry through programs like GAIN and ARDP. You know, to be competitive, to uh, level the playing field and export markets, we're going to require a lot of supportive policies. You know, this means in engaging with prospective markets in advance of commercial deals, you know, helping nuclear newcomer countries with capacity building programs and establishing uh, regulatory institutional frameworks necessary to uh, start new civil nuclear programs. The first program, that is another acronym, Foundational Infrastructure for uh, Responsible Use of Small Modular Reactor Technology at the U.S. State Department was started for exactly these reasons. And I think to be effective as a facilitator for U.S. civil nuclear exports, we're going to need closer interagency coordination among all the relevant agencies, including state, Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Department of Commerce. And we'll need to take steps to uh, streamline and rationalize export control processes, which can be complex because these different federal agencies are involved in different parts of this export control regime. So it sounds like there's a fair amount of work that has to go into that in financial commitment. What's at stake if that doesn't happen? Or I guess, what's the opportunity if it does? You know, at the end of the day, these efforts are uh, absolutely worth it because the stakes are more than just financial. You know, not only are we talking about a clean, firm energy source that can help countries reduce energy dependencies on uh, authoritarian petrostates like Russia, uh, these civil nuclear deals establish you know, decades-long diplomatic relationships and are obviously a great tool for strengthening bilateral ties with important international partners. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Russia and China are currently prime competitors in the space and losing market share to Russian and Chinese vendors. You know, this is not just money off the table. We're allowing Russia and China to establish avenues to exercise, you know, geopolitical influence in these countries, these regions. It also erodes our capacity to shape international norms in in, in nuclear safety, security, and nonproliferation. So this is as much a national security priority and issue as it is a commercial or energy issue. So I want to pull on a few threads there. Um, 
first of all, I want to ask point blank, Carol, I wonder if you can help here. What do you think has changed the tone around nuclear today? I remember covering this issue as a journalist several years ago, and it sort of seemed like the era of nuclear was fading. The future of large nuclear power plants that still produce around 20% of electricity was in doubt. It wasn't clear if the licenses for these projects would be renewed. Certainly new ones looked difficult and are difficult to build. Companies like Westinghouse struggled financially. So what would you say is now opening up these new opportunities? I think there's a combination of things from climate goals that are becoming more real as we come out of COP, as we see the recent IPCC report that really had a very alarming conclusion in terms of the need to decarbonize rapidly. I think that's a piece of it. I think energy security is another big piece of it as people are taking a look at where their energy supplies are coming from and making sure that we're able to deliver energy and electricity supplies on a 24-7 basis. When we think about our expectations for modern society, it's around making sure that we have reliable electricity. It fuels so much in our daily lives. I know we've had storms here in the Washington, D.C. area, and when the power goes out, it's challenging. You know, you don't have your communications, uh, you don't have your internet, you don't have sort of the the creature comforts and important infrastructure for our daily lives. So it's ensuring reliability, it's ensuring resiliency, it's the energy security aspect, the climate aspect. And the other really interesting shift that I've noticed is a focus on energy systems, really moving away from a technology tribalism where we focused on a specific technology. We start to focus on what does it take to make an energy system work? What's the combination and portfolio of technologies that help us achieve our goals? Meeting climate goals, meeting energy security goals, being resilient and reliable. That means there's a basket of technologies and nuclear fits well in that basket. When we start looking at the other piece of this that I think is important is I think when you were talking about nuclear in the past, we were talking almost exclusively about large light water reactors, which, mind you, are important and will have a role going forward. But we also are now seeing other technologies come to market that are smaller, everything from micro reactors at a couple of megawatt size through to a couple hundred megawatt size, all the way up to these large reactors. So they're more flexible. They can pair very well with other carbon-free generating technologies. And as we start looking at the system economics, we've seen a lot of research that's indicating keeping nuclear in that mix as you decarbonize actually gets you to the best result in terms of cost, as well as having that firm, clean, reliable base that you can incorporate more renewables and other carbon-free sources with. So it's that shift in thinking about it that I think is also really important in the conversation. I do want to touch on a physical security element because we talked about Romania. We've talked about the national security demands and why people are looking to control their power, have reliable power and get it sourced from allies. But we did just see with Russia's war in Ukraine, one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants come under the control of Russian forces. And it created some concern around this plant could become destabilized. It could become a threat to the population in that region. So, Alan, I want to put this question to you. Does the situation in Ukraine highlight the physical risks of these types of power plants? What would be the takeaways from this scenario? This is uh, an incredibly complicated issue. 
you know, perhaps worthy of its own podcast episode or, or conversation. You know, civil nuclear infrastructure being caught in an active war zone. Uh, I believe this is a scenario without historical precedent. Uh, obviously, there was the incident back in March, you know, the skirmish or, or combat actions that took place near the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which, you know, drew significant international attention and also condemnation, you know, of the Russian military. And as Carol said, this is just overall a very tragic situation. Uh, I think the main concerns right now are centered around the condition of staff, you know, at the plant and, and how the broader conflict is affecting the ability of the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, to, to access and monitor the plant. You know, so this is a really dynamic situation. The book is, is being written as we speak and by no means has the dust settled. You know, with that being said, uh, here are some, you know, preliminary, you know, perhaps premature thoughts you know, around takeaways from some of these events in Ukraine, you know, first and perhaps most conspicuously, you know, the Ukrainians themselves, in spite of all of the potential risks and everything that's happened to their, you know, civil nuclear infrastructure the last several months, you know, they're aggressively committing to developing more nuclear energy with outside vendors, including U.S. companies like Westinghouse. You know, I think that speaks volumes, you know, for a country in uh, military conflict and, and which has directly experienced incidents such as what happened in Zaporizhia to, to make such decisions, and especially at this stage, you know, I think speaks to their confidence about you know, how they view the safety and security of their nuclear power infrastructure moving forward and how important they view nuclear power as uh, a part of their energy mix in the future. You know, second, I think current events in Ukraine really highlight the importance of U.S. presence in international civil nuclear markets in order to ensure that globally we have the strongest nuclear safety and security standards possible. Uh, the U.S. is widely recognized as having the world's most rigorous safety and security practices for nuclear power plants, whereas uh, Russian and Chinese standards, for example, are considered to be comparatively less robust. You know, so for those who may think that events in Ukraine should give us pause in exporting our nuclear technology abroad, I actually think that they reinforce our thinking about the value of civil nuclear exports. You know, third, you know, on top of also disseminating our safety and security standards, you know, what is going on in Ukraine, I believe, should also encourage us to accelerate our transition to advanced and innovative reactor technologies that have enhanced passive safety benefits and other relevant advantages. And I think the combination of these two you know, should push the needle forward on making sure that civil nuclear infrastructure anywhere in the world, you know, is as safe, robust and resilient as possible, you know, across a range of different possibilities, scenarios and circumstances. So we talked about these advanced nuclear reactors, and we know that enriched uranium is essential fuel for all nuclear reactors. One challenge is that the high assay, low enriched uranium needed to power these more advanced solutions comes almost exclusively from Russia. So you and your colleagues at Third Way have written, quote, without a reliable supply of nuclear fuel, we risk our energy security, technological leadership and climate goals, among other national priorities. So can you explain this issue? We're talking about the technology and the opportunities and the security benefits, but then we have the fuel used in these reactors and still have to problem solve around that a little bit. So Alan, to you, how do you think about this? So many U.S. advanced reactor concepts and technologies in development you know, are going to require, as you said, uh, these higher enrichment uranium fuels called high assay, low enriched uranium or HALU. 
As you noted, right now, the only commercial supplier of Halu in the world is Russia. Even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this was viewed as a a problem, and the U.S. has been uh, seeking solutions to the situation for some time. Uh, The Energy Act of 2020 you know, officially authorized and established the uh, Department of Energy HALU availability program, you know, the purpose of which is to kickstart a domestic uh, commercial HALU market so that there is fuel available for these advanced reactors. There are different approaches that DOE can take. You know, it can enter into a cost share with uranium enrichers to make sure the appropriate investments in licensing and infrastructure uh, are made. It could also establish a HALU bank through which, you know, the department would commit to purchasing a, uh, a predetermined quantity of HALU to send a market signal to fuel producers. But with any of these approaches or strategies to encourage the development of a HALU market, we are going to need robust funding uh, for this program or any program intended to achieve the same objective. You know, there were a number of recent bills, including the uh, International Nuclear Energy Act of 2022, introduced by Senators Manchin and Risch, and the uh, Fueling Our Nuclear Future Act, introduced by Senator Barrasso, you know, both back in April of 2022. Both of these included authorizations for significant funding to build out a domestic HALU production capacity. Ultimately, there are massive implications from the development of a reliable domestic supply of HALU. This is a uh, pivotal factor for the commercial viability of our advanced reactor technologies. And once we start talking about exporting our SMRs, advanced reactors, there will be ramifications for our foreign policy and national security interests as well. Our energy security and the energy security of our allies, competitiveness in international markets, our nuclear security and nonproliferation objectives and so forth. One very urgent issue that I would like to highlight Regardless of any progress we achieve towards the development of a domestic commercial HALU market, you know, given the rapidly approaching timelines for the uh, Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program demos, the main two projects, we're unlikely to stand up fuel production capacity in time to supply the uh, first fuel loads for those demonstrations, as well as other near-term Advanced Reactor deployments in, in the U.S., uh, there's potentially a number of different avenues to producing this initial fuel. One that is receiving a lot of attention now is taking highly enriched uranium, HEU, and downblending it, you know, mixing it with natural uranium or low enriched uranium to produce HALU. But this will require some uh, due diligence to determine which pathways are feasible, uh, sufficient political will, and of course, funding. Right. Funding. So sticking with that thought and the policy angle here, Carol, so if you had to whittle it down, what would be the one or two policy changes that you would want to see from the U.S. government? Are these proposals that Alan has already alluded to? Are they already being discussed? Is there something we haven't heard of yet that you'd like to see lawmakers take action on? How do you think about the policy angle? So when I think about this, and I think about it specifically in the context of small modular reactors, These are reactors that'll be in the range of probably 300 megawatts or less. So there'll be many more of them that would be deployed to meet our clean energy demands. To that end, as we think about the need of scaling these technologies, of being able to deploy many of them, 
The first thing that we'll look at is really around the regulatory infrastructure, the ability for us to license designs both here and in other countries, as well as site these reactors in locations where they make sense. And so I think one of the first areas to focus on is going to be the area of regulatory efficiency without compromising safety, which has to be the first priority. Cooperation internationally to reduce regulatory timelines to the extent that's feasible is also something that would fit in that basket of policy options. I think the second area I would focus on is around financing. I think we had some very good news last week out of the EU with nuclear being included in their taxonomy for sustainable investment. I think as we look at deployment of clean energy technologies, financing is going to be important. That will be important in terms of domestic financing, but also in terms of export financing to make sure that we can both deploy here in the U.S. and export efficiently. And then I think that the last area I'd focus on, as Alan was talking about a little bit in terms of our ability to export, when we look at the potential global market for nuclear technologies, I remember reading one estimate just of the scale of this market being tremendous. So looking at the trade advocacy that could be used to support U.S. exports. I know Alan highlighted a number of those things in his remarks, but looking at how we're advocating for U.S. technology deployment abroad is also an important policy aspect. Building new big nuclear power plants has proven difficult here in the U.S. today, but it seems like we might be seeing this change with the advent of these new small modular technologies. So you talked about the demonstration projects, Alan. One of those is being led by TerraPower, which recently chose the coal mining city of Kemmerer, Wyoming, for the site of its nuclear reactor called Natrium. The project has backing from the Department of Energy, and Bill Gates, a supporter of this project, called it a, quote, game changer for the nuclear industry. So how can these modern modular nuclear power plants be game changers, not for just the industries, but for the communities, communities like Kemmerer, Wyoming? So TerraPower's uh, Natrium project in Kemmerer, Wyoming, is one of the uh, advanced reactor demonstration program demos that are slated to be completed by later this decade. You know, from the perspective of the utility or developer, I think the benefits are obvious you know, with a, a retiring coal plant site, such as the one in Kemmerer, a new advanced, you know, nuclear plant could leverage a lot of the existing infrastructure, transmission lines, cooling water. Uh, perhaps even more important than this is, is being able to leverage the existing workforce that was employed at the retiring coal plant. And this is exactly why this is such a game changer for these uh, types of communities. We can go through the clean energy transition, move from coal to a zero emissions generating asset, you know, with minimal disruption to the livelihoods of people in the community while still preserving the economic fabric of the community. A lot of the skills and capacities required in the operation of coal-fired power plants would be transferable to the SMR or advanced reactor facility. Some jobs would translate to the new nuclear plant with no retraining or minimal retraining you know, according to a report done by Scott Madden, you know, back in October of last year called uh, Gone with the Steam, a great title. On average, nuclear plants create more uh, permanent jobs on site, higher paying jobs than any other generating technology out there, including coal, natural gas, wind and solar. You know, so from the perspective of, you know, both the developer and the community, this is a uh, massive win-win. 
And it's certainly not just Kemmerer, Wyoming. You have other parts of the country, retiring coal plant communities in West Virginia, uh, for example, that are highly interested in the possibility of hosting an advanced reactor facility in the future. Uh, and, and certainly we can assume that the interest domestically by some of these communities would likely also extend to uh, coal c- communities internationally, which uh, should in theory open up markets for these reactors, especially in countries that are heavily dependent on coal for their energy. You know, Poland is, is one such example that comes to mind. I do want to pivot now and talk about existing nuclear power plants. Carol, there's been some debate here in the U.S. about keeping these older plants operational. We see that play out in utility rate cases and and broader dialogues. Here in California, where I live, there's actually been a major shift in tone from Governor Newsom and others around keeping open the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which is slated for retirement starting in 2024 as of right now. So how do you think about the existing power plants in the U.S. today and what's the case for keeping them open? Existing nuclear plants in the U.S. are about 20% of our generation. They're, they run 24-7. They're reliable, baseload, clean power. They provide tremendous employment and benefits in the communities where those plants are operating. So as I think about the existing fleet, I really think about the fact that they are an important part of their community, an important part of the energy system that makes all of our modern lives possible. And then when I sort of take a step beyond that and I think about some of the economics around this, and we look at study after study that have just indicated that including nuclear in your energy mix is one of the best ways to get you to a clean power mix. So if you look at a study recently commissioned by Energy Northwest, they found that the Pacific Northwest, for example, could save more than $8 billion a year by keeping nuclear plants online and adding SMRs to their mix. I think if you look at the IAEA report that was uh, issued recently, they also talked about keeping existing nuclear on the grid is one of the most cost-effective options for meeting clean energy goals. So as I think about it, and I think about the situation in California, I think about the decisions that were taken in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Illinois, it's really a trend. We're seeing it also overseas where countries are are taking some decisions to either keep plants running or invest in nuclear really is indicative of a broader perspective on where nuclear fits in this overall energy system and coming up with a system that is going to work for our modern society and meet our broader goals in terms of environment, economics, and others. So whether we're talking about existing nuclear power plants or these new small modular reactors, we do have to also think about the waste. So Alan, you talked about new fuels. Let's talk about spent fuels. I understand they are stored in about 80 locations in 35 states here in the U.S. today, and there are justifiably some public concerns around the safety of that nuclear waste and just some questions about the long-term planning around where that fuel should go as we see greater investments in this technology. So what are the long-term plans for disposal being discussed today, and what do you think will make them successful? Taking a step back and just looking at the big picture on nuclear waste, you know, clearly it continues to be an issue that affects societal perceptions and attitudes around nuclear energy. But there's also a practical side to this issue and its ramifications for deploying nuclear moving forward. You know, for example, you have some states in the U.S. that have moratoria on nuclear build precisely because there is not resolution on the permanent disposal of spent nuclear fuel. 
in the European Union. Uh, as Carol mentioned, nuclear was included in the taxonomy as a green investment, but it came with your requirements that there be a permanent solution on nuclear waste. So very clearly, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And in the U.S., our commercial spent fuel stockpile is, uh, as you noted, spread out all over the country at both operating and inactive decommissioned nuclear power plant sites. And that is clearly not how things were intended to be uh, under the uh, Nuclear Waste Policy Act. Department of Energy is responsible for spent fuel and high-level waste and managing this material, which all of this was intended to be disposed of in the Yucca Mountain Geological Repository in Nevada, but that program effectively ended approximately a decade ago. So right now, we're really starting from scratch when it comes to the waste issue. The good news is this, you know, with this sort of reboot to the system, I think we will be able to embark upon a more sustainable path forward, you know, towards a solution for spent fuel storage and disposal. You know, the primary challenge as it pertains to waste, and this is beyond just the U.S. and Yucca Mountain, this has been a common theme across many different countries, is the siting of a permanent disposal facility for spent fuel. And the main misstep that national governments have taken is that they have employed a top-down approach towards siting these facilities. So they'll often prioritize considerations such as geological suitability for a repository and perhaps not sufficiently take into account the perspective of prospective host communities, local and regional stakeholders. DOE, Department of Energy, announced the restart of its consent-based siting program, which, you know, above all other considerations, focuses on the needs and the viewpoints of communities and other relevant stakeholders, you know, that will be affected by any siting decision. And, and considering the lessons from history and the experiences from around the world, you know, we think this is a sensible path forward. The immediate goal for the consent-based siting program right now is looking at, you know, at least consolidating the spent fuel stockpile, which is dispersed around the country in uh, temporary storage sites. And of course, uh, one of the central actions of this effort should be, you know, to engage with communities that are potential hosts for such uh, interim consolidated sites. Well, we've covered a lot of ground from new partnerships abroad to coping with waste here at home. Carol, I'd like to give you the final word. What would you like to leave our listeners with? Julia, thanks. That's a, a great opportunity to kind of summarize this conversation. And I'd really kind of leave us with some parting thoughts around the shift in perspective, meeting the opportunity that nuclear and the technologies that nuclear are bringing forward. So when I think about the shift in perspective, Alan uh, spoke very well to some of the shifts in terms of state policies, recognizing the value of nuclear to meet energy goals. We're seeing uh, support at the national level, um, both from the Biden administration as well as from Congress for nuclear. And we're seeing bipartisan and durable support for nuclear, which I think is very important. And we're seeing globally recognition for the importance of nuclear in our overall energy mix as we transition to clean energy. I think the other piece that is very important is the technology as well. We're seeing reactors coming to market that are both large light water reactors as well as small modular reactors and advanced reactor technologies that are a, a breadth of sizes and attributes that can pair well with renewables, both for the electric power sector, but a piece we didn't really talk about on this episode that I think is equally important to bring into the conversation 
is decarbonizing the rest of our economy. And when we think about it, electric power is a significant source of emissions, but other sectors like, say, manufacturing alone is about 45% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And I think nuclear technologies coming to market will also have broad applications to meet industrial needs. So I think this is a great opportunity and a time for nuclear to help address climate, be part of a broad energy mix, help both at home and abroad with energy security. And so really, it is now a time for us to meet this moment um, and deliver on all of the things nuclear can bring to our lives every day. We will leave it there. Thank you so much to both of you for this detailed breakdown of not only where we are today with nuclear technology, but how it fits in this arsenal of clean energy for the U.S. and its allies. Carol Allen, thank you so much for your time. And that brings us to the end of episode two in the Arsenal of Clean Energy podcast series supported by Third Way. I'm your host, Julia Piper. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks also to our editor, Kyle McDonald. Hit subscribe so you don't miss the next Arsenal of Clean Energy episode airing next month. Until soon. Until soon.